Dr. Konstantin Pleshikov is visiting professor at Mount Holyoke College. His previous books include The Tsar's Last Armada, Inside the Kremlin's Cold War, The Flight of the Romanovs, and his latest, Stalin's Folly, which he will discuss with us today. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Dr. Pleshikov. Thank you. Hello. Your book, which I enjoyed very much, doesn't have much biographical information uh, about you. Can you tell me a little bit more about, um, about uh, your background? I will be happy to. I was born in the Soviet Union, more precisely in what's now Ukraine. That was just part of the USSR. Then I went to Moscow State University and got my degree in uh, history there. For 15 years or so, I worked in a think tank in Moscow. It was called, remarkably enough, the Institute of U.S. and Canada Studies. <laughs> we were supposed to advise the, advise the government on uh, foreign policy issues, and maybe that's why the Soviet Union collapsed. <laughs> uh, in uh, 98 I moved to this country and since 98 I've been living in western Massachusetts and loving it what else uh, just a bit of self-promotion in uh, in Russia I've published seven seven books of fiction so this project Stalin's Folly this is the first time I deal with World War II all right well, Dr. Pleshikov, why did you uh, choose to focus an entire book on the first uh, 10 days of the start of the Nazi-Soviet conflict? I would say that for, for Russians or Soviets, whatever, the first 10 days of war in June 1941 is somewhat like what the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor is for the Americans. You know, this sudden attack, devastation, and uh, that terrible war starts. Your book uses some new materials which were apparently not available to historians until recently. What, what were those sources and which ones did you find most useful? In the past 15 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union, quite a few documents were released from Moscow archives. The most important are some top secret documents of the Soviet leadership, Politburo some cables from Soviet diplomats and, even more interestingly, spies overseas. Mm -hmm. Then some classified reports from the front line and Stalin, Stalin's secret police reports. Unfortunately, I must add that now the flow of the new, of the new archival materials has basically stopped because Russia is changing rapidly and now it's going back to being a xenophobic closed society. And um, I'm sure, well, I hope that in several years or maybe in a couple of decades, more sources will become available for a new generation of historians. What I thought might be the most intriguing fact for me, at least in, in your book, was um, the fact that those Russian setbacks on the Eastern Front were partly, at least, due to Stalin's planning to double-cross Hitler 22 months after they formed an alliance in, in 1939, but Hitler just beat him to it. This is quite controversial, is it not? Yes, it is. Uh, for, well, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a really controversial uh, matter. To start with, uh, when Hitler attacked the Soviet Union in 1941, he said that he had to do that because Stalin was planning to attack Germany. And so nowadays quite a few people are uncomfortable with this notion, you know. So yes, Stalin was not a good guy. Uh, but come on, if we say that he planned to strike first, 
does this mean that we justify Hitler's invasion? Right. But news sources indicate that Stalin did plan to forestall Hitler's attack. The problem was that Stalin miscalculated time-wise. He thought he still had about 12 months or so. Look, that's the spring of 1941. Yes, the continental Europe has been occupied by the Germans, but Britain is still fighting. And Stalin says, look, Hitler still has this unfinished business in the West. Only if and when he conquers Britain, he could strike at us. And uh, so we have at least one more year. And so he did not, uh, he did not rush his war preparations. And the Red Army, the Soviet Army, got caught in this kind of strategic limbo. It was not ready to attack, and it was not, and it was not ready to defend the country. Well, I must say your premise uh, is made uh, fairly convincingly because anyone who, who studied um, World War II at all knows that it was something of a crazy situation uh, on the Eastern Front, that uh, soldiers and planes were caught in very vulnerable forward positions. And, uh, and of course, this makes a great deal of sense if, if Stalin was planning to be the attacker, not the defender. Yes, absolutely. Preparations for the, um, for the preemptive strike had not been finalized either, and so the, the army was caught in its most vulnerable phase. Just how bad were those early losses of men and airplanes? Oh, they were absolutely staggering. In the first 20 days of war, the Soviet Union lost 600,000 men. We're talking about a soldier dying every two seconds, roughly. In the first, not just hours, but in the first minutes of war, uh, the Soviets lost about 2,000 aircraft just on the ground. And um, in, in the matter of the first 10 days of war, the Germans were allowed to occupy the territory of the United, uh, the territory, the size of the United Kingdom with a population of 20 million people. Can you imagine 20 million people living under the German occupation just after... Ten days, uh, just ten days after the beginning of the war. Right, and and I guess by the time the front settled down uh, later that year, it would be it would be virtually till 1945 until the uh, to, to the the Red Army went back to those original lines. Well, uh, end of 44, but almost. So we're talking yeah. about three and a half years. Sure. Three and a half years to reclaim the territory yielded to the Germans in the first uh, few weeks of war. I don't think in America uh, people really realize the huge numbers of, of, of citizens lost on the Eastern Front. Uh, you, you print in the book that it's officially 27 million, but there's credible estimates of as many as 50 million Soviets dying, perhaps 100 for every American loss in, in World War II. In that, in that great catastrophe, how many of those people can you think you can attribute to those initial setbacks in June of 1941? Is there a way to sort of guess that? We know that 600,000 soldiers were lost in the first 20 days right. of war. So, and most of those casualties were absolutely, they were, they were not necessary, they were avoidable. But the problem is uh, we even don't, we don't have the faintest idea of how many civilians died. Right. Half a million, two million, uh, who knows? Because, you know, so, uh, well, first of all, you're talking about those terrible air raids, then artillery fire, then you're talking about hundreds of thousands of refugees 
Jews and Russians and Ukrainians who tried to flee into the rear. And what happened? Uh, all the roads were clogged, and German Luftwaffe pilots just massacred people there, and nobody kept track of the dead. The thing, I must tell you that after I finished the book, the thing which shocked me most was there is absolutely no way of determining, actually, how many people were lost, particularly civilians, women and kids. Each time I have guests from Russia and I go to Washington, D.C., I take them to the Vietnam War Memorial with every name there, right? 50,000 people. Right. And, and, uh, the Soviet, and Russia is still unsure how many people it lost in the war and the, and the margin of error is not 10 people or 10,000 people, but a few million. It's, it, is, it is staggering. It is, yeah. How, how do you account for Stalin's ignoring what was some excellent spy information that he was given that a Nazi attack was imminent in spring 1941? He had, um, well, he had a great spy ring, particularly in Europe, uh, because most of his agents, uh, they worked not for money, but because they believed in communism and uh, stuff like that. Uh, the problem was that any intelligence reporting is quite messy. Gossip, hearsay, imagination, so on and so forth. And so his spies started promising a German attack as early as uh, in the summer of 1940, 12 months before the actual attack occurred. And so first they tell him, uh, the Germans are going to strike in August 1940. Then they repeat the same warning in October. Then in March 1941. So finally he just stopped believing their reports. Not to say that he was right in doing so, but that's a rare case when we can actually say that, well, all right, that was not entirely his fault, because so many misleading reports had been reaching his desk before that. I'm puzzled when I read your book and accounts of, of the war about the fact that Stalin initially refused to even allow forces to shoot back for fear of escalating a provocation. How do we make sense about his paranoia about provocations. I think you used the exactly right word, paranoia. Because when we talk about spy reports or the preemptive war strike, that could be rationalized and explained in a more or less consistent and logical manner. But his, uh, his absolutely insane belief in the first hours of the war that that was just a provocation, you can't explain that rationally. That was just some kind of mental instability, I don't know. And you're absolutely right. For several hours, the troops were not allowed to respond. Of course, some did. But uh, the Soviet army lost the most critical first, uh, well, uh, about five hours before it was uh, allowed to react in any possible way. Right. We're speaking with Dr. Konstantin Pleshikov about his book, Stalin's Folly, the tragic first 10 days of World War II on the Eastern Front. Dr. Pleshikov, you conclude, uh, contrary to, I guess, what is, uh, what is the accepted, well, what has been the accepted view, that Stalin was not so much depressed at the onset of war, which caused him to really not take any action, so much as just simply refusing to take charge of the war for fear of having to accept responsibility for defeats. In other words, he was being a ruthless politician, even in the gravest of times. Yes, that's true. And what happened, he refused to take any responsibility for military leadership for the first 10 days of the war. He refused even to address 
the nation. For two days he refused to communicate with his military commanders at all and uh, did not answer the phone and uh, just staying in his, uh, in his uh, uh, country house. Uh, so that was the worst possible thing a leader of uh, the country could do at that time. You mentioned at one point a, a description, I guess, from one of the participants that when they went, the five of them decided, the leadership decided they must get Stalin to act. They show up at his, his country home, and he looks up and asks, why are you here? Sort of the, what I got from it was expecting that this was a purge about to take place. And then he seemed relieved that when everyone was actually still afraid of him. That's a very dramatic episode, absolutely. So uh, by that time, he had been absent from the Kremlin for two days, and, uh, and obviously he was not just depressed and confused but he thought that everything was lost. And so he locked himself in his country home and suddenly those five guys walk in and excuse me, they were led by the head of the secret police. So uh, his most natural presumption was, was that they had come to arrest him and for good reasons. And so he was absolutely shocked when they just mumbled, oh dear Comrade Stalin, would you please come back and uh, and supply us with wisdom and guidance again. <laughs> which he agrees to do. Which, which he surprisingly agrees to do, yes. Can you, can you, can you tell just a little bit about uh, Berea, the man who uh, rivaled Stalin and ruthlessness, the head of the secret police? Yes, uh, he came from the Caucasus, from Georgia, just like Stalin did. Uh, he was a man of exceptional brutality, but a person with extremely sharp political instincts. A very interesting guy, by the way. Years later, uh, already after Stalin's death, he actually attempted to introduce some kind of reform to the Soviet Union, because as the head of uh, the secret police, he was well aware of the situation. Uh, and he was even thinking about maybe withdrawing Soviet troops from Eastern Germany. A very pragmatic guy. Uh -huh. uh, but uh, at the same time, um, well, uh, often he is portrayed as extremely efficient, uh, great spy master, and uh, a person who was in full control of uh, the Soviet Union's uh, security issues. Just one quick example. Uh, that, that was not the case. When I was growing up, Old folks used, used to say that, yes, Stalin and Beria, they were terrible, but at least trains ran on time. <laughs> Unfortunately, my research proves that, no, they did not. Just hours before the German attack, hundreds of uh, German, uh, of German uh, commandos infiltrated the Soviet territory and disabled the Red Army by cutting all the communication lines in the West. And I mean this all. And so, you know, this infamous or famous Soviet secret police led by Beria, they failed to deceive them. You, you note in the book that uh, there were these, of course, famous purges uh, in the Soviet Union just leading up to the war, and that um, if the purges failed the Soviet military and, and the Soviet people, it, it did, they did wind up retaining Stalin and communism, which lasted up until 1991, 50 extra years, when you might have expected at the onset of war that everything would have collapsed. Is that a fair statement? Yes, unfortunately, yes. Uh, 
the purges on the eve of war were absolutely horrendous. Practically all senior military commanders were shot. And people who took their place, they were badly trained, badly educated, absolutely not fit for, for the job. However, their great terror saved the regime and the nation. Well, listen, so when a war like that strikes and the defeat is absolutely horrific and shameful and it's clear that the leader of the country can't provide any real leadership. And so what would be a more natural time for a military coup d'etat or for a popular revolt against the regime? But nothing happens. Well, occasionally an angry officer kills a secret police agent and so on and so forth. Uh, there were desertions, but there was no revolt and no coup d'etat. And so it's, it's, an, it's an, so to say, it's an ugly thing to say. But the great terror saved Stalin's skin and saved Stalin's regime. Thanks to the great terror, the regime survived the defeats of the war. And yeah, it lasted for 50 more years. As opposed to when the Bolshevik Revolution 1917, things collapsed, and of course the war was brought to a halt on the Eastern Front. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, because, uh, you're absolutely right, because the Bolshevik Revolution uh, resulted uh, from the defeats of the Tsarist Russia in World War One. Yeah. It's part of the lore of World War II that, uh, that Mussolini's engagement uh, in Greece required the German involvement in the Balkans and, devade, and, and delayed the invasion of the USSR by perhaps six weeks. Do, do you think that if the Nazis had invaded when they meant to, uh, with better weather, that that might have been fatal for Stalin? People speculate on that. And I think this makes much sense, no matter how banal and conventional this, this argument is. Uh, originally, Hitler planned to strike on May 15th. Because of the invasion in Greece, he had to postpone the attack for five, six weeks. And uh, absolutely, uh, because uh, his progress in the first months of the war was absolutely staggering. And yes, Soviet soldiers, the rank-and-file soldiers, they fought heroically. But, um, but the Germans were really stopped only in December 1941 at the very doorstep of, of Moscow when that famous, you know, harsh Russian winter arrived. And there are good reasons to believe that if Hitler had, uh, had struck, let's say, five weeks earlier, he could have occupied Moscow and the whole of central Russia by the end of the year 1941. But this doesn't necessarily mean that he would have won the war. Uh, yes, the Soviet Union was uh, ineffective and mismanaged, but it was a huge country. And even with Moscow occupied, Stalin could have taken his uh, forces to Siberia and keep striking at Hitler from there. Sure. Even we, people, people don't know, forget that Napoleon actually did make it to Moscow and he still lost. Exactly. And, uh, but... Uh, the war against Napoleon in 1812, remember the famous Tchaikovsky peace, 1812, um, that was a different matter because Russian generals at that point, they knew that they were overwhelmed and they actually withdrew the, uh, they actually withdrew the army into the rear and let Napoleon take Moscow, knowing that Russian winter would kill him there. Yeah. 
your family, you mentioned in the book, had to deal with, with the German occupiers. Um, what story about the, the Russian disaster in World War II strikes you most personally? When I was growing up as a boy, well, you know, we are all exposed to those uh, family stories. The family stories I was told most often, they dealt with their plight during the German occupation. They spent three years in the Crimea, occupied by the German army, and, um, well, there were so many episodes. For instance, once my grandmother saw the Germans executing uh, a few teenagers who were part of the anti Nazi resistance. Of course, the family starved, and at one point when uh, my grandmother was told to go to Germany to provide slave labor, she flatly refused, and the officer uh, almost killed her then and there. And you know what? I I have a picture of that officer in my book. Yeah. He looks such a nice guy there, a relaxed guy uh, who is kind to the locals, but he nearly killed my grandmother. A couple final questions. Why do you think Japan honored its non-aggression pact with Stalin when an attack supporting the Nazi, their Nazi allies might have destroyed the USSR? That's a good question, and you're absolutely right. If uh, Japan had joined the German attack in 41, uh, the Soviet Union would have collapsed, absolutely. Uh, well, it looks like that Japan was, was not interested in, uh, in, uh, in occupying the Pacific coast of the Soviet Union. We are still talking about a very, uh, with a a territory with very harsh climate and limited resources. And so when Japan had to choose between Siberia and Singapore, they (laughs) went for Singapore, and I don't blame them. (laughs) Well, Dr. Pleshikov, can the U.S. learn some lessons uh, about intelligence gathering and some geopolitics from Stalin's folly, perhaps things that we might apply in our current uh, so-called war on terror? I kept thinking about that particularly because of all, of, all, of all those reports about intelligence gathering. Right. And uh, it looks like that even, you know, this most perfect, wonderful, true report uh, can be lost in, the, in this routine flow of misleading or boring or irrelevant information. And maybe it's a very pessimistic judgment, but I don't think that any, even the most effective spy network or spy organization, can work out the system which would, um, which would, uh, which would really select those wonderful, great, important reports from all this nonsense, which I'm sure floods every president's desk. Well, Dr. Konstantin Pleshikov, thank you so much for speaking with us about uh, about your book, Stalin's Folly. Can you tell us, uh, just last question, what's your, you have a plan for a next book coming up? Yes, but I'm not sure what that's going to be because I'm talking to my agent. She's a wonderful agent in New York City, and uh, now we have to decide what I'm going to do next. All right, well, well thank you. Thank you so much, and your questions were absolutely wonderful, and I know that unlike uh, many other guys, you did uh, go through the book. Yeah, I did my homework. I know, I know that all authors hate it when people fake as if they've read the book. Thanks so much. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.